Monopsony Podcast is back on the air. That's right, we're back, and thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is going to focus around one question that has finally piqued my interest to drag a new episode. And it has to do with music. Now, I'll tell a tale, but the question is this. Why does Spotify choose to show us the play count of every song? The drink of today is something called Everest. Apparently it's made by Pepsi. I found it at the local grocery store. It says it's a ginger ale, but it's made by Pepsi and it has its own brand. I'm a little confused by it, but I was in for a ginger ale, so today's episode is a ginger ale of dubious Pepsi repute. As always, we're encouraged by your emails, and you can reach out to us at monopsonypodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, One Buyer Podcast. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get back to the roots of the podcast and actually talk about a business model and get into some of the business aspects that we find, I find illuminating and fun to discuss. And I'm going to start with a tale. Now, this is a tale of I Got Robbed. And this was the spring of 2011. And basically what had happened is I had gone to university and I had all of my computers. I think many of you can, uh, at least of a certain generation, can uh, empathize with this situation. I went to university with a very large desktop that could connect to the Wi-Fi, and I found myself in connection with everyone else's computers, wherein then I could share my music with them, and suddenly I had a terabyte of music. Things I never listened to, but I just simply collected. No more were CDs, no more anything else, just hours and hours and hours and hours of music that sometimes I would put on random and just see what happened. For days, for weeks on end, I could play music. It was all mine. I owned the files. And in this robbery, I had my computer stolen. I lost that terabyte of music. Now, it was very possible, and still is possible, if anyone knows me wrong, you can just replace that music quite easily. But at the time, it was so much music that I didn't know where to start, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to you know, find it all again and then have to organize it and anything like that. So I started looking around for a solution to get back to being able to listen to music rather than having to own my own collection. And that's when I came across something called Spotify. So you'll forgive me if my assumption that I think the listening audience here knows what Spotify is. That said, for those that don't, a brief introduction. Spotify is a streaming music service that started in approximately 2006. I didn't look into whether they're the number one streaming music service in the world. Uh, they may be. They might be. They're certainly the one that I use uh, all the time. I've been a paying member since 2014. Now, in 2011, when I had my computer stolen, I had the options of replacing my entire collection or being able to find some way to get the music I wanted instantaneously. Spotify allowed me to not have to own the music, not have to download the music, not have to buy the music, but rather, for free at least in their original consumption, because I used it for three years for free, listen to all the music I wished, provided that I listened to ads every 30 minutes. And in their system there, they have all the songs that I could ever wish for basically by all the artists I could ever wish for. So they maintain the system, they maintain the catalog, they maintain the simplicity of how I can find the music I want, and I listen as I please. 
provided that I listen, listen to ads from time to time. Now, my conception here in question was when I'm searching for artists and when I'm looking for their artists, it is often the case that on Spotify, and actually for every artist page that you go to, you can look at the play count of those uh, individuals. So on the right-hand side in the popular section of any given artist under the overview tab, they have a count of how many listens it has on Spotify. Now, I'd noticed this for years and I never thought much of it, but the other day I saw it again and I had a question because on the set here under popular, they're listed as one, two, three, four, five top songs, I suppose, but they're not listed in order of plays. And I couldn't figure out how and why they're listed in what order. I have no idea what the ordering is of the popular section of an artist's page or in general for how they're ordered in magnitude of what comes up next. It's certainly not by play count. So I'm looking at the uh, the sheet here or the uh, top feed here for Flowrider and the number one popular song listed under Flowrider's page is Low featuring T-Pain and it has 252 million listens. Number two, which you would think had is less but it has more, is 343 million for Wild Ones then 584 million for his biggest of My House and then a huge drop down for number four to 1,057 million, 157 million for Right Round. And then back up again for Whistle with 260 million. Now I don't know how they're ranking which of these because it's not by aggregate play count. So I started thinking about Spotify and that led me to make the episode today. So I'm going to get into the business of Spotify and see if we can talk about and understand their business model, Five Forces, nine points of a business model canvas and then we'll come back to why they have this listed as a number count for each artist. Five forces. If anyone doesn't know what the five forces are, they're made by Michael Porter many years ago and they're basically a conception of understanding what are the threats and how is a market compared to any other market. Is it a good market to invest in? Is it a bad market to invest in? Is it growing? Is it slowing down, is it hard to get into, is it facing threats, a basic play to understand anything about the market in general. The five forces being barriers to entry, competition, alternatives, buyer power, and supplier power. Those are the five. Okay, so let's start with this. Now, barriers to entry, this is something that Warren Buffett has actually famously said that he looks for in investments is companies that have natural barriers to entry to competitors. So a barrier to entry to the gold industry is owning a gold mine. Either you have to find a gold mine before anyone else or you have to buy a gold mine to get into the gold mine game. Ostensibly then the cost of entry is very very high. If you were looking to get into the iron industry and make steel or something like that you would need to own a foundry and their cost of a foundry is expensive. So the total amount of capital and investment and even strategic resources you might need to have to compete in the market to be a gold producer, iron producer is a barrier to entry. For Spotify, the barriers to entry aren't that high. So the actual product of Spotify where you set up a system where artists can be connected with 
subscribed listeners, is not very difficult to copy. If I wanted to, I find, and difficult is a relative term here, I don't have to buy anything. I just have to have a couple hundred or a couple hundred developers, and I could copy their system as best I could reasonably quickly for a reasonable amount of money. It's not that the app was particularly difficult to code. It's not that the, you know, the system was difficult. Spotify's system is not difficult to copy. There's no particular barriers. It takes some money. I could start one up if I wanted to, provided I had some amount of money. So a huge investment would be billions and billions of dollars. This is a couple million, maybe, depending on. So the barriers aren't that high. What the barriers are to being successful is another question there. So the barrier to being an entrant into a Spotify competitor, reasonably low. The barriers to being successful, reasonably high, but not insurmountable. So the barriers to entry in this case are having the artists and having the people to listen to the artists. Now, obviously, for my end here, for you thinking about if you were going to start a company like Spotify, you would have to, in your business model, have a way to attract, keep, maintain, and ensure the happiness of the artists. That's not essential to making the product, but it is essential to being successful. On the other side, as Spotify rightly deduced in the same way, if the artists are all in one place, the listeners tend to show up. So Spotify does do a great deal of marketing and everything else to get listeners in the door listening, but they got the artists first and then added the listeners. The listeners came to the party for the artists. This is the place where artists come together to show their goods, wares, songs, everything else. It's a marketplace. Okay, the middle of the five forces, competition. Competition means how many entrants and how many so we say competitors are there in the marketplace. And if there are that number of competitors, what are they doing? Are they fighting? Is there a price war? Are prices going up? Prices going down? Are there new entrants all the time? Are there lots of companies that fail? What's going on in the in this certain market here? What's going on is that not too many, and this is again a generalization here, few competitors are coming to make a play at Spotify. And the competitors that are exist, this is Jay-Z's streaming service, there are others. They are not fighting over the cost or the price point of their services. So we are not seeing a price reduction. We're not seeing them do cost reductions. We're not seeing them do discounts. We're not doing, seeing anything that they're particularly doing to fight over the cost of the services. What we are seeing is some, this is current, some fighting over users, so trying to have engaged users in a not necessarily growing but slowing down growth market. The people who've become interested in music in this format have already kind of found these services. So the growth rate has slowed from new entrants that are all taking on this kind of services to those that are switching or you know younger people who are now coming into music to find the service that works for them. That said, we find that the competition is quite low. These competing services are fighting, but not overpriced, not as hard to the detriment of the market. Everyone's still growing. That's still happening. So barriers pretty low, barriers to success high, competition low. Alternatives. Now, the alternatives for Spotify are interesting to me. Not to the competitors, and this is not a competitor point, it's CDs, records, 
downloading both legal and illegal, buying things, even going to iTunes and downloading the specific song you want and paying a dollar a track. All of those things are alternatives. Now, the power of the alternatives in my end is, I think, going down. This is an opinion on here, but sales of CDs, sales of records, sale, even downloading in total, people who are paying for the downloading, so let's say there's a legal downloading too, people are recognizing that the ownership of the material is not a requisite to enjoying it to the value they get out of it. Uh, streaming on YouTube would be an example here just as well. You just go to YouTube, type in the song you want, and start listening. Now, that said, there's detriments or downsides to having to do that. You certainly just have to know what you're looking for on YouTube, and YouTube will recommend songs, it thinks, but it could be other videos. It's not the same as getting the music you want the way you want it. In addition to for paying per download, Spotify offers free with ads as, as you listen or as I pay for it in a subscription service as much listening as I want. With an iTunes scenario where you download per song, you get to own the song and that song you can listen to over and over and over again as much as you so please, but you have to grow your collection. So the power of alternatives is declining. It still exists. There are people who still want records and there are still people that want to own their own music but that power is going down. Buyer supply, buyer power. This is an interesting one here. Buyer power would mean something along the lines of, are we finding that there's people who consume music that are looking to have exert influence over Spotify? The answer to that is pretty much no. I have no particular influence. My power is not growing over Spotify. Some, usually it happens in buyer power where they become less buyers and the fewer buyers there are, the more power that has over the company or the market. In my case, everyone listens to music, so each person's power is diminished and therefore power over Spotify is minimal. Supplier power. This is number four. This is more interesting here. Supplier power comes into kind of partnerships or where the source of parts comes. So you need to make sure that you kind of includes, I would consider artists as the supplier section of this. So their power, since there are so many artists, isn't amazing. Their power on the, on the market, they're going to command some amount of money. And if you were very successful already, you can also then command or ask for different negotiated rates to have some more power, but it's not requisite. But the supplier power on the other end is powerful. This is Apple. This is Chrome. This is Google. They are the ones that support the devices that Spotify is generally listened to. So I listen to Spotify on my tablet, on my desktop. I have a Google Home. All the devices that support the ecosystem that Spotify exists on, where I download it, where it connects, where it plays, are supported by partner suppliers. And in this case, they're threat or their level is medium to high. It's very possible that the profits from this or at least the market itself may be consumed by one of these or at least fraught with danger from these larger corporations here. Spotify being much smaller in terms of its actual scope and size than Apple or Google. So then in all we have it. We have five forces. We have low barriers to entry, high barriers to success, low alternatives and lowering, low buyer power, 
medium supplier power and no competition. All in all, this is a good business. It's going to be profitable to be in this area. It's growing and it's not something that's being fought over. So we end up having a market that's actually quite lucrative. Mm. Ginger ale. Let's get into the nine parts of the business model canvas and we can get back to it quickly. I'll try to go fast, okay? The nine part parts of the business model canvas include one, revenue streams, two, key resources, three, key activities, four, cost structure, five, customer segments, six, value proposition, seven, key partners, eight, customer relationship, and nine, channels. Okay. Let's go through this quickly because this is actually a fascinating part of understanding how Spotify works. Spotify is what's called a tiered subscription model business. Standard subscription model would be something along the lines of you give money at a standard incre increment, whether it's once a month or once a week or once a year, for services during the time period in that same increment. So I pay a standard amount of money every month and I get access to all of Spotify's services. Now, to make this reasonable in terms of getting people to want to do it, because the number of people who are willing to pay isn't that high, they have what's called free services. The free services work like this. I still have access to their music and their services, albeit a little less, and I have to listen to ads. If I subscribe, then I pay them money and I have access to everything. So. Here's what we have. We have two sources of revenue streams. I'm going to start on revenue streams. Subscribers who pay Spotify monthly and non-subscribers who make their money from ads. Now, ads run a number of different ways. We'll get to that. But they, you know, the ones I want to focus on there as a revenue stream are for those that are paying, not paying the money up front from the users. There are also ads that come to everyone in different ways you can uh, different ways you can uh, garner advertisements from Spotify, and that's another source of income for them. So there's three sources: subscribers, ads, and ads part two, basically. Key resource. Now, as I mentioned, the critical thing here is there's not a high barrier to entry to building what Spotify has built, but they have a key resource, and the key resource is the platform. The network effect. When people use the system, it's harder for them to leave. When artists use the system, it's harder for them to leave. Every person that uses the system makes it that much harder for everyone to leave the system to a new competitor. Every new artist that comes on board makes the artist community stronger, wherein it's harder for the artist community to move to a different system. Both require both, but the key resource here is that they have both. And therefore, the network effect exists, and that platform effect is, in fact, a key resource. But that's basically all I could think of for the key resources of Spotify. There's nothing else that is actually that hard to copy or things that they have good difficulty with. It would be difficult to lure away artists, but it wouldn't be insurmountable. You just pay them more money per listen in a rate that they'd be making more money with less listens, and you could, you could make it work. But you don't, they don't want you to. So again, it's a network effect there. Okay, key activities. This is the point of the key activities. They only have to do this. 
deliver people the music they want, that's it. That's all they have to do. Deliver people the music they want. Now, there are a bunch of subsequent activities that go into that activity, but if they can't deliver the music people want, that's the only thing they had to do. So the number of subsequent activities are things like music is constantly changing. There are always new artists, there are always new songs, there are always new CDs, there are always new soundtracks, there are always new things being recorded. Therefore, Spotify has to keep up with that. If they aren't current, then they aren't delivering the people what the music they want, because the people generally want current music. That doesn't mean that they don't want older music too, but if a new movie comes out and they don't have the soundtrack to that movie, that's strange for the listener. So it, it disrupts the delivery of the music that they want. What they wanted at the time in the current you know, meta of whatever year it is, is the current movie that's available. So new music is essential to the delivery of music that they want. Old music, which you only have to add the once, is available as soon as it's available. So again, Spotify basically has in its mission, it has to keep adding new material all the time. Whether new artists, new releases, new CDs, old music, you name it. If they don't, they're not going to meet the delivery point that they're asked to of delivering the people what they want. Okay. There are other things of key activities, like again, this is kind of stuff like they have to pay HR, they have to pay their building management fees, they have to pay their server costs. Again, I don't get into that, but those things all exist. Those are, again, neglig not negligible, but minimal costs. Because I'm going to talk about cost structures here. Now, cost structure isn't costs, so we're not going to get into what it costs for the chairs and the tables and the buildings and the people and the number of people you have and the coders and everything else. Those are the standard costs of doing business. The cost structure is what we want to talk about here. What is unscalable? What is scalable? What is large lump sum? What isn't? So there are basically, I came up with a, six different kinds of costs that are actually very important to Spotify. First, there's the cost of acquiring music, artists, etc. So getting new artists to sign up to be on Spotify costs money. You hopefully get them to do it themselves because they want to sign up, but the new and latest band, making sure that their music is available on Spotify costs Spotify money in terms of marketing, in terms of business contacts, in terms of working with record companies, in terms of everything. It costs the cost of acquiring that music, the new releases, everything. Okay. Second is the payment structure to the artists, which is based on listens. So the more we listen to a section, the more the person get paid. Seems pretty reasonable based on that. Now again, if lots of people are listening, cost structures imply that we're going to be paying out lots of money. That's the way it works. Okay, cost of con usage by consumers. So again, there's a cost associated not only to paying the artist, but there is a server cost to playing the song through the app. So for every kind of million people that play, the server costs and every data cost and everything else go up at commensurate rates. Again, another part of the cost structure. Finally, there's consumer acquisition costs. Now this is basically just marketing, but it's, a, it's an essential point in that they have to keep adding people. Now specifically, you, you, know, you get to uh, certain people, and for me, I've been on Spotify and I stay on Spotify. So there's some level of churn 
people are getting into Spotify and then leaving Spotify, but they're trying to attract people who don't leave, and that costs money, either to get them back if they do leave or to attract them the first time if they didn't, either for the free sections or for paying customer acquisition points. Either way, customer acquisition marketing is an essential cost. Now, I'm going to bring up here that part of that cost structure becomes complicated. And this comes up with something that's been happening with, uh, expectedly happening with um, Spotify. And I'm going to bring it up here because it's part of the, what I mentioned is that the, the supplier costs are high. And the same way here, the cost structure becomes kind of an imperative to Spotify. So um, Spotify recently had, a, 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 shall we say, a long-standing beef with Apple. And I know this, I used to do apps too is that if you have a spot on the App Store, which Spotify does, okay, they ask for 30% of your transaction fees. So in the basics of it, if you have an iOS device and you downloaded Spotify through the App Store, when they pay Spotify, the monthly service, which I do, 30% of that goes to Apple. 30% off the top. Now that's almost highway robbery. And in this case, Apple considers the Spotify users to be Apple users first and Spotify users second. And therefore, Spotify generously gets to pay the 30% to Apple because Spotify is part of the network or on the platform of Apple. Spotify, on the other hand, is not about to want to pay 30% for every iOS user. So in 2015, and I remember this because I was actually a part of it, Apple, or not Apple, Spotify encouraged a whole bunch of their subscribers to desubscribe and re-download the app from their website, not from Apple, to avoid paying the costs. This basically means that the subscribing people that said, hey, please delete the app, download from our website, don't download from Apple, and therefore the money goes directly to them. Now, this absolutely pissed off Apple. Apple was not about that at all. That's going around Apple, which of course is their entire business model is you have to use their platform. So, Spotify felt that Apple was having undue revenue incursions onto Spotify's business and started to make points against it. And of course, then they got into a legal shuffle about whether that's anti-competitive on Apple's part or actually anti-competitive on Spotify's part, either or, here both. So, Apple was saying that they, they use a free service, so they should be treated as a free app and therefore they become a, a competitor, competitor to them and that they find that, that they don't have to have them on their marketplace. Spotify needs to have Apple users but doesn't want to pay Apple's parts. Now, in this case then, because the efforts weren't going anywhere and they were heading a lawsuit, Spotify began to do something that I would consider to be one of the things I want to bring up here later as part of its general uh, play. They basically started to punish the artists who gave Apple Music exclusive by delay, displaying their content less prominently and offer fewer promotional opportunities. Basically what this means is if you were engaged with Apple as an artist, okay, and you were giving exclusive music to Apple, Spotify started downgrading your search results and started downgrading your promotional opportunities as a retaliation because you were working with Apple. That's a very strange thing that they are allowed to do that, but they are in fact allowed to do that. So Spotify controls how and when and why you're found. So if I want to search Coldplay, it's possible they could have Coldplay there, 
But if they said, did you mean Coldplay? They just put up a whole bunch of list of searches to make it difficult to find Coldplay, therefore denying people the ability to find Coldplay. Because Coldplay is working with Apple. Well, this made Apple angry, and this made the artist angry, and it finally settled in a law, settled the lawsuit wherein the two have become generally nice to each other again. That said, they're still not happy. No one's happy at either end of this. Spotify prefers that you download from their store or from their own website. Apple prefers and says that if you download from the iTunes store, that you, in fact, owe 30% of the revenue to Apple. It's not over yet. That said, it displays the power that Spotify has over its own platform in the same way that Apple has power over the platform that Spotify's on. So they're actually running the same thing here. Spotify wants to have control over its platform, but its platform is in fact connected to the larger platform of iOS devices. Customer segments. Now, I don't know the customer segments actual data, which is what you generally need to do this thing without being in Spotify. So if someone from Spotify ever wants to talk with me and bring the data about their customer segments and breakdowns, I'd be thrilled. But I came up with some ways. We could do it by acquisition channel. So whether it was direct download from the website or whether it was download from a third-party service, Android service operating system, Apple operating system, or word of mouth. However it is that they came in contact with and began using Spotify, that's one way we could break down their customer segments. We could do it by device operating system, again, iOS, Android, Windows, that kind of thing. By device, mobile, tablet, desktop, home devices. We could break it down if they're paying or free customers. Uh, for my end here, the latest results from April of 2019, and Spotify published this, so I found the data. There were 217 million Spotify users of which 100 million pay monthly. That's 46% are paying users. Uh, I think this is unheard of on my end that 46% of them actually approve and use the services for payment. But that's an amazing feat there. 46% of people paying when it's offered free is unheard of in my mind. 46% is huge. Way to go Spotify on that one there. The metric doesn't lie. People will pay for music, but about the rate that Spotify asks them to pay, and only about 46% of them which is still very, very high. Okay, you could also do it by age brackets. I think the age bracket one is probably inter more interesting and I'll have to come back to that one. Value proposition. Okay, so the value proposition of Spotify is basically that you don't need to own it, as I mentioned before. You don't need to organize it. There's no need to own, do anything. It's the music you want when you want it. Now here's the part where it gets a little more tricky in the value proposition. What if I didn't know what I wanted? or I wanted something you didn't know, I didn't know I wanted. Spotify has to be here for that. So when I'm confused, the value proposition is that Spotify can provide me music that they think I'd want, in addition to me telling them what I want. I'd like to listen to Elvis Presley, lets you know I want to listen to Elvis Presley. But it didn't tell you that what I actually wanted to listen to was Great Balls of Fire, because I thought it was by Elvis Presley. And I didn't remember that it was called Great Balls of Fires. So I just kept putting down, you shake my nerves and you rattle my brains. And of course, then it has to figure that out too. So how we search for the music is something that is part of the value proposition of Spotify. I don't need to know the artist. I don't need to know the names. I just have to be able to know what I like and try to find something like it and can suggest it. So that's, again, a part of a different play for value proposition. This has changed everything, though. 
and some people may not even realize this because they're you know young enough, and that's why I bring up the younger users here. Back in the day, and I say this even for myself when I was in fifth or sixth grade, the music you owned like meant something. So when your friends came over to your house and they saw what CDs were in your CD collection, that represented you. You paid for that music. And it was there for everyone to see and you showed it off. This is me. This is my collection. So, you know, when someone came into my room when I was in fifth grade and saw that I owned two Weezer albums and a Cranberries album and a couple REM albums and a Depeche Mode album, that meant something for them about me. They judged me based on my albums. And this is true all the way back into records time. So when older parents would buy a record, they'd have it in their record collection and then a date someone might come over and say, oh, you own that record? Ooh, I don't like your taste. And it could be a lot of things. Or, ooh, he's got great taste. He's got that live recording of John Coltrane, blah, 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 blah. You had to lug them with you when you went off to college. You had to bring your CD collection with you. They were bulky. You had to sort them. You had to alphabetize them. You had to put them in these big books. It was a whole thing. And it meant something about what kind of a music file you were, audio file, about how you did so, what you listened to, what you owned. None of that matters anymore. And that's, again, part of the change over here. Everything is everyone's. So I don't have to own anything. So there's no way that, not even when I had my, all my digital music on my computer, and people might come and say, what music's on his computer? They might judge me a little bit there. Nothing. Everyone's music is, in fact, all up in the cloud, and they can listen to anything at any time. No more judgment. And that's a sea change in how we perceive and get recognition and value out of our music choices. So again, value proposition is a very different and fun thing to think about there. Key partners. Google, again, Android devices, Apple, iOS devices, Facebook to a certain degree, Twitter. They serve as marketing platform for being able to show off what music you're listening to. So the new thing, instead of owning the music and being have people show that you own it, is to stream and share what you are listening to currently so that you can seem hip and with it in your choices or not. It's kind of a, a self-promotion of what music you listen to, but those are the channels. Again, Facebook, Twitter, and they make for key partnerships. I also bring up the artists. Now, I'm going to bring this up here. I don't really want to use artists so much as I should use the term rights holders. Sometimes the artist is the rights holder. Sometimes not. Often not. So in this case, your artists get paid, which is, again, say not necessarily the artist, but the rights holders, who then give some percentage of that to the artists based on contract or whatever negotiation they have with the artists. Okay? Spotify doesn't make a distinguish per se between paying the artist or paying the rights holder. There is some leverage within working with them, so they negotiate within a degree of freedom about how much they get paid per listen. But there's also a degree of mm, exclusivity that goes on between the platforms. So just yesterday, I realized that Lemonade, Beyonce's Lemonade, was on Spotify finally. And I listened to it for the first time, maybe two days ago. Now, it's an older album, but it was exclusively released on Jay-Z's streaming service. And then it wasn't on Spotify. So much so that Spotify had to put up a little disclaimer saying, like, we're sorry we don't have Lemonade. And they didn't have Lemonade because Beyonce made it exclusive to Jay-Z's streaming service. Now that that exclusivity has run out and they've negotiated terms, Lemonade is available on Spotify. 
So there's some amount of leverage because I would assume there were some people on Spotify who wanted to listen to Lemonade and were upset that they couldn't. Enough to switch to Jay-Z's service? Eh, up in the air. I certainly waited along and now I've listened to Lemonade two or three times. I'm patient like that. Not everyone is. So I mentioned the payments to the rights holders. Spotify actually gave me the numbers here. So they say that they pay rights holders in the range of uh, six-tenths to eight-eighty-four-hundredths uh, of a cent per listen. So I middled that for an average here uh, to say it's seventy-two-hundredths seven of a cent per listen. Now, I don't know why they told me this. It's, you know, I found it on their websites, and I found their information on how much they pay. So then I did some calculations because it was fun. Um, so I went out. I was listening to Flowrider. And Flowrider's My House, which had 584,267,722 listens as of uh, yesterday, that is the equivalent of saying that in revenue, they paid the rights holder of My House $4,206,727.60. In general, 139 million listens equals 1 million in revenue. One of the bands I've been enjoying from Japan, I listen to Japanese music a lot. Yes, I like that. Uh, Ikimono Gakari, their song Sakura from way back in 2012, has 2,696,589 listens, of which I now have four from yesterday. And that pays them, over the lifetime it's been on Spotify, $19,415.44. So, listens and stuff, they don't get paid a lot. It depends on how much they get listed over time. Now, you also have to put up there that these key partners in the customer relationships end up with artists being able to curate their own pages, or at least the holding companies of the artists, or the record companies, or the people who own the rights, curate their own pages, pictures, tour dates, concert tickets, all of those kind of things that go in there to keep them happy as they are key partners. Number eight, customer relationships. It's a subscription model. So in a general sense, if you fail to meet the needs of the people, they leave. Um, and churn is expected, but it is the enemy of Spotify. It's all about LTV, lifetime value. So if I become a listener for free, how long do I listen for free before I turn and pay them money? And how long do I pay them money for in the lifetime of listening? Now, I've been paying them for five years, it turns out. So I've paid them quite a bit. But I've paid them only a small amount every month. How long is the lifetime value expected of a given user? I don't know. But I know that Spotify keeps track of those things because you try to keep them in the community. You don't expect them to stay forever. But some of them are, and that keeps them paying the music. So they have a vested interest in getting people the music the people want as effortlessly as possible to avoid churn, because it costs them money to get new users. So I am a very loyal customer, and they want to keep me. They should probably be spending a little bit of you know capital money to keep me happy. More so than, it, and that's cheaper than getting new people. Okay. Now, the other thing to think about here in the customer relationship is the customer of the user. There's two ways they kind of interact with this. They know what they want. So for me, I wanted to listen to Flowrider. I listened to Flowrider. I've typed in Flowrider. 
Specifically also, it was only like four days ago that I figured out it's Florida, because I thought to myself, where's Florida from? And then I felt like an idiot because I realized he's from Florida and I had like many, many years of Florida and I had no idea until I dumb on that one there. But I learned. So if I know who I want and what song I want and specifically the name of the song or the artist, it's very simple for Spotify to provide me with that, prov that provision. However, the second part is where they have to always be improving when they don't know what they want. So if I go and just say, play me music, any music, you have to think about what music or how they interact with the bass or the entire scope of what music is available. Did they want a polka? Did they want a hard gangster rap? What did they want? So the ways in which it provides music to people who didn't know what they wanted or couldn't articulate the specificity of what they wanted, which is actually way more than people know what they want, is a provision that has to be done in the customer relationship. So this is especially important for younger users. Now it is possible uh, that my grandmother wants to listen to new releases that sound like Glenn Miller. Ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da da ba ba. Oh, Glenn Miller. That said, I don't think she's a core demographic. She uses Spotify. It's true. She listens to Glenn Miller. She listens to all her old hits. She loves it. She knows who the, all the old artists are. She knows who she wants to search. She knows what the songs are. She searches them all up by that, and that's how she interacts with Spotify. But if you're a younger user who wants to learn what's coming up, because if it's a new band, no one knows their name, and if they had a new album, no one knows the title of the album, and they had a new song, no one knows the title of the song. So without the marketing the other side there, Spotify is under pretty much direct compulsion to provide channels to new artists or new positions of these two younger users. I think it's a younger user thing too. Not that older users don't want to uh, be provided music if it's new and you know hip, but older users have a longer memory of knowing what it is they desire. Um, so if I want to listen to Cat Stevens, first I have to know who Cat Stevens is. Pretty simple. So if Spotify ever stopped being the place for new releases, then they lose new additions and younger users, the users that they have the possibility of the greatest lifetime value, go to other channels that do have the latest releases, which is basically younger people. Again, after a while, how they find the names of the artists or that are new or is yet undiscovered is important. Uh, recently, again, this is pretty recent within the last two years, Spotify has also done certain things to try to attract those younger users with discounts, actually. So student discounts for while you're a student and family discounts while you're a family. So, well, I suppose while you're a family. Families in general. So if you have more people listening, then you can have a family plan, that kind of thing. This is all about, again, lifetime value. So the students that get the Spotify subscriptions when they're in college are more likely to keep the subscriptions as new music rolls out. Number nine, channels. Facebook, standard marketing billboards, app stores, Twitter. Again, the app stores, all the ways in which you can find and use Spotify are controlled by others, basically, except their own website. So their own website runs their own downloads, but anything else, Facebook has to be where you can be transferred to download at the site. Marketing and billboards have to make people aware that this is a service that they want. Twitter does the same play. 
and the app stores are the ones that are the big, 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 big. So you find the app for Spotify on the app stores, and then you will have to work with the partners of Google and Face and, and iOS. All right, whew. We made it through all nine. Now, I want to get back to the actual point of the episode here was to ask, why do they show me the play counts? Now, obviously, they show me the play counts so I could calculate how much money they, told, they sold the rights holders, but that can't be the only reason they do that, and I can't figure that one out yet. I did all this work, and I actually did a bunch of research, and I still actually haven't figured it out, but I'll go through it anyway. What I've learned in the first one here is this. In a very strange incentive, since I'm paying them money, Spotify doesn't want me to listen to the artists. Now, that seems counterintuitive here. They want me to want to, enough to want to pay them the money every month, but they don't want me to listen to the artists, because every time I listen to the artists, it costs them money, six-tenths of a cent, and the cost of whatever server costs I have. And so, like, it's just a, a question here if I don't really know, like, it's very strange. It's kind of like a Netflix scenario here. They want you to want to watch things, but they don't want you to aggressively watch things. The more aggressively you watch the things, the more it costs them to maintain it. Same thing here. Hosting the files with no one listening to them costs them very little. Hosting the files with everyone listening to them costs them more. That's minimal, but it's a very strange way. They're not necessarily incentivized to want me to want to listen. Number two, I also learned, big thing from learning doing all this work with Spotify, is that the curated lists are incredibly important to the new and even established artists. So basically, we have motivated listeners who are motivated to learn more and know more and do research and find out about new bands and be at the forefront of hipsterness to know every new band and everything else. And then we also have people like me. Now, I appreciate new music, but I also don't actively know enough or seek it out in a way. So it has to come to me organically. And that's difficult. And so the curated lists actually mean a lot of money for artists. And so Spotify is in a position, not necessarily, you know, it, it is a, a position where they could be corrupt. And I put this out that they probably have ways around this, but I see it in a way that if I were not a upstanding citizen or an upstanding company, $50 could get you on the playlists that are being listened to frequently at the top of those playlists. So more people listen to them whether they kind of wanted to or not. Now Spotify does this daily mix uh, up to six playlists. And the daily mix is how you get on there is curated by their playlist curators. Now, those curators have a lot of power it turns out because anything they put on their list automatically pays money out. So that's something we, not necessarily I need to be aware of, but it's not necessarily that the best songs or like songs that are actually popular are getting promoted. It's a little bit of Spotify's choice as to what gets promoted. And therefore it's a way for them to discriminate, not in the you know bad way, discriminate in terms of your customers if the customers that can pay more should pay more. Well, the customers in this case is the artist here or the rights holders. If they want to pay Spotify money or pay the people who are running the lists, the global heads of rock music, dance music, country music, whatever, 
to put themselves on that playlist there of what's being popular, then that automatically is kind of a conflict of interest in a certain way. Now, I bring it up because it's obviously it's by play count. And I thought about this here in that Spotify has been around for two, since 2006. That's 13 years of Spotify. So that's 13 years every second someone could be listening to it. And so you've had 13 years if you've been on since the beginning. So when Spotify launched, whatever songs were there at the very beginning, you've had the entirety existence of Spotify to have all the listens they could. But as the growth of the audience increased, the old days weren't as valuable as being on there. Each second is not as valuable as being on there now. So one second of being on currently, the potential reach is bigger than one second of at inception. That seems pretty reasonable to understand. So there is a tax factor of time that goes into how that you get the count and how you make money off it. But it's also kind of a recency bias here. So the question becomes, who controls the list and the recency bias of what makes them into the play? I also am curious about bots. Obviously, there's some security um, around Spotify here. But if I made 5 million fake accounts, and those 5 million fake accounts only listen to The Locomotion by Kylie Minogue, would The Locomotion by Kylie Minogue suddenly make a bunch of money? And if so, how much would I charge to have them make that much, much, much of money? So Kylie Minogue, though I, you know, upstanding as she may be, I could make her with 5 million bots, I could make her $50,000 of which then she would pay me $40,000 to make her $50,000, netting her $10,000. Cool. I don't know how Spotify combats the bots who are listening or not listening to these songs and what defines it, but I know that it makes a difference as to how they pay out the artists. So the control of the lists is one issue that I've come up with here for understanding what's not necessarily wrong with Spotify, but they want to be the platform. And just in the same way that Apple controls the platform, Spotify controls the platform. So they're incentivized to make as much money from the platform as they can, which means advertising or at least the marketing and promotion of the songs directly affects how much they can be found. So for me, I'm on Spotify right now. This podcast is on Spotify. If I were to find a way to pay Spotify money, they would find a way to promote me, which would then get me more money. Whether I was good or bad or people like this podcast, they might just run into it randomly. So that's kind of like a tricky situation here. If it turns out that Spotify recommended the list and it sucks, people start not saying that they enjoy Spotify. But if they put advertisements that are from the people and are forthright about it, then suddenly it's not Spotify's fault. So there are a huge number of displays and advertising that actually happens within Spotify, as I mentioned, A and B. So A is, spot is the types of advertisements that can be shown to non-subscribing users. And B is the kind of advertising that goes into placement and promotion of it within Spotify. So like a sponsored playlist. Uh, we can talk about display ads. Uh, again, overlay, branded playlists. These are all things that actually will use your money to promote you getting your money back through Spotify. Again, amusingly that if you didn't have money, so again, if this was an open market, which it supposedly is, if I was young and I was, you know, had no money, I'd be on equal footing with people who are established, which is not the case within Spotify here. So just being clear that we all understand that it's not a, a necessary, it's a fair marketplace, but a fair and that the money is equal. Which, again, the question mark becomes, what are the parts of uh, what makes up to how many listens to a song? Again, I mentioned time. Now I want to talk about demographics of the users. 
I don't know what the demographics are, but I would think it skews young based on technology and other such. So younger listeners don't listen to older music would be a general axiom. It's not necessarily true, but it is to a degree true that you don't get obsessed with new older music. Because the older music, even things that are, I would consider were huge hits back in the day, have considerably less listens than something just fresh and new. Again, because of the actual people who are listening to it. There are more people listening to Drake because they're younger than we're listening to The Beatles. Not that The Beatles were more important or less important than Drake. So I know they're more important than Drake. Um, it's just that there's a recency bias that actually Spotify has an incentive to keep going. The more recent their music is, the more recent they can say they are, the more recent they can keep their playlist and their people happy. So they don't need to promote older music, they just have to promote younger music, which means younger, faster music, or not faster, more recent music gets more listens more readily. Um, and so I think that's kind of an issue of visibility here. That's not necessarily it's a problem for Spotify, it's just something for us as the user base to be aware of, that it's not organic being presented to us, it's actually within the incentives of Spotify to present us with known quantity liked music. Which is again, just trying to think about that, is that right or is that wrong? I haven't figured it out. But then why show us the number of listens? Why show us that I think the Beatles have an unnaturally low number of listens comparison to their importance in music? I don't know. Why are they listing them in non, shall we say, listen order? So why was uh, T-Pain, why was Low featured above Whistle? Whistle has almost three times as many listens as does Low. That could be based on when it was released, what people have listened to it, how recently it came out, the number of people on the, on the tracks are on the total community when it was released, a number of factors. In general, I think they just show it to make sure that you know you're not listening to something that no one else likes, which is kind of strange because I would be more inclined to listen to something that no one likes. And again, I'm normal. I'm a normal person. Let's put that out there. I'm a normal person. I don't think strange thoughts about Spotify and have, how they have conflicts of interest. No, of course I don't. I would never bite the master that feeds me and has the podcast which hosting me. I love Spotify. Uh, but I think the point here is that the, the recency makes for greater pull. So if you had a billion listens, which some of these songs do, it's not that they're better or worse songs. It's a factor of all the things that make up the number of people who've listened to the song and who they are. It's not a question of critics, it's not a question of people, it's just a question of total, total listens. In general, I think it's people like to be reminded that other people have listened to the same songs they have. I may be in the minority on that. Another episode of Monopsony Podcast is finished up. Thank you for listening to our meandering, you know, rant about the business model of Spotify. If you have thoughts or concerns or even questions about how subscription models work and what incentives they give to the businesses that run them and or to the platform of Spotify itself, I'm always happy and open to those discussions. You can email me at monopsonypodcast at gmail.com. Until the next episode. Mm -hmm.